0: hello listeners and hello brian hey dan happy halloween yeah halloween-een i guess the day before halloween we're recording this about two hours before midnight of halloween and i'm excited it's it's a uh, Lot going on, and I've been like at Halloween parties literally every day for the past four days now, and trick or treating tomorrow, of course. And then my younger daughter turns three shortly after, so crazy time on, on Dan's side of the mic. Wow! But how are things going for you, Brian? Okay, I was just out testing the projector animation on my row of singing pumpkins. So do you have, like, a, a standard set of decorations for Halloween, or do you mix it up every year, or does it just kind of evolve over time? It mostly just grows.
1: Okay. There's not, like, a different theme every year. It's There's just... I tried to add a big set piece most years. I didn't really get anything much new this year. I got a bat from Target that's got, like, a three-foot wingspan that I've got hanging on the window shutter. But... That's small potatoes compared to last year. I got the 8-foot Home Depot spider and the year before that, the 12-foot Home Depot skeleton.
0: Wow. Yeah. That skeleton is something special. Is a tall boy. My God, man, you're so large. <laughs> the references in this podcast are starting to run too deep. They're even going outside of the podcast itself. Right. You need
1: to also have studied... The Count Gauntly Corpus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is your your public access TV show. But this is the 104th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. And we are discussing a horror movie. Ends up being actually a pretty good Halloween movie, I'd say. It is a movie that I took a total stab in the dark. Maybe a grab in the dark, if you will. Something that I knew pretty much nothing about. And that is a 1999 horror comedy entitled Idle Hands. So, Brian, if I recall, you had not seen this one either and didn't really know anything about it. Right. I had never
1: heard of it, except, of course, once you mentioned it, suddenly I was
0: seeing Facebook posts about it. So that's the way the world works. All these algorithms. Yeah. And I checked it out on Letterboxd, and a couple people I follow had seen it, too. So how did you first encounter it? So... It, it always comes back to that thing you do. One of my favorite movies, the 1996 Tom Hanks starring and Tom Hanks directed comedy. And early in that movie, there is a band performing at a college show. And there's a heckler in the crowd. I always really liked this heckler. I thought it was funny. And a month or two ago, I was looking at his filmography to see if I had seen him in anything else or what else he had been in. And I saw this movie and I was like, that just looks so interesting. Horror movie from the late nineties that I've never heard of called Idle Hands. And I I put a pin in it. I I have a list of movies to think about for future goods episodes. And I put it there and I pulled it out. And it turns out uh, that that Heckler plays one of the two cops who comes to an unfortunate fate in this film. Oh, okay. So a, not a major role but he's still there. The star of this is actually Devin Sawa, who I mainly know as the real-life version of Casper in in the 1996 live-action Casper film.
1: Right, I recognized his face, too, and I think it's got to be from that, even though I don't know if I've ever seen the Casper movie the entire way through, but I do remember the scene where he, like, makes a wish or casts a spell or something that lets him be human for a little while. And he dances with Christina Ricci.
0: Right. He also looks like Ryan from the OC, except his nose is just a little bit bigger, but otherwise he's like a dead ringer for that guy. And he has the same hairstyle here that Ryan does at the start of the OC too. Um, I forget that guy's name, but he starred in that Gotham show a few years ago. Anyways, But like I mentioned, this movie came out in 1999 and reading a lot about horror over the past month or so, and just watching more movies and reading more reviews and books about film and stuff, you start to learn about some of the eras of film, some of the tide changes. One of those is the late 90s. Pretty much everything was reacting to or attempting to recreate the magic of Scream which we discussed last year which basically injected an element of snarky chatty teens and a sort of uh hip tone to horror movies and I definitely think you see some of it here although this one has its own specific flavor where it's kind of a stoner comedy version which was not really an element of Scream right this movie has a pretty heavy dose of comedy in the mix yeah And this movie got delayed for reshoots, which I'm going to talk a little bit about in a minute. But after it was delayed by a couple months, it had the misfortune of debuting less than a month after the Columbine shooting in 1999. And one thing to know about Columbine was that there was a massive push against violent media as a possible cause of The way that these teens were becoming all violent and doing crazy things. And so this movie actually got chastised. I saw that Joe Lieberman, who was kind of on the front line of anti-violent media post-Columbine. This was one of the, the movies he singled out as, This is the filth that's infecting the minds of our kids. That's why they're going crazy. And to be fair, this is a pretty messed up movie. It's like, I don't know if I would necessarily want my teens absorbing the morals and philosophy of this film. But I would say that that it's unlikely that this movie has caused any school shootings. So it ended up a massive flop. It only made $4 million against a budget of $20 million. Wow. But based on just some anecdotal things I've seen, I think it's become something of kind of a cult hit. It's It's undergone a reappraisal because it got panned on reviews too i think it was at like 15 percent or something on rotten tomatoes did they even have rotten tomatoes in 1999 i don't know when it debuted i mean it was around the turn of the millennium okay i'm gonna look it up now when did rotten tomatoes debut but they still collect like old reviews into rotten tomatoes oh okay you can look up older movies all right it looks like it launched in 1998 Mm. So before this, but I doubt it was getting much traction in 1999. Because to me, this movie was like a time capsule. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's it's very late 90s. I'm going to talk about some of the specific things. It was like
1: Snow Day if the kid in that, like instead of trying to return a whale bracelet, is being controlled by his evil hand. Right. Anklet,
0: forgive me. (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah but i like zebras man the snow day musical i'm scared is not gonna actually launch because i think it's warner and warner put a lot of stuff on the chopping block oh no batwoman and the snow day musical yeah so streaming movies typically get announced like the the details and the release date in the trailer one to two months before they go live. So I'm going to start to get real nervous if we don't see it in the next few weeks. Anyways, this movie, Idle Hands, one of my my regrets is that as soon as I picked it, I should have gone and bought the DVD because I only realized this morning that the DVD has, first of all, an alternate ending to the film, which I'll talk about here in a bit, and also a director and cast commentary which you know I love listening to. So I didn't get around to listening to that, but maybe someday I will and fill in some details, you know, along with our uh, Max Magician, which we talk about listening to at some point. But any other thoughts before we dive into the story of Idle Hands, Brian?
1: Just that if I knew that this was going to be a Killer Hand movie, we could have launched into a whole Killer Hand month because actually there's, there's multiple I think there'd be just enough to give us four weeks, if not five. What are some other ones? For instance, there is The Beast with Five Fingers. There's a couple others. Looks like this uh, BuzzFeed listicle says, And now The Screaming Starts from 1973. There is The Hand from 1981. Oh, and of course Evil Dead too where Ash starts getting attacked by his hand and has to cut it off. And that's why in the third one, he's got a chainsaw for an arm. And then Adam's family, right? I guess that one's not quite so evil. Right. But I feel like we could round out a month. You know, you got to have some variety. It certainly
0: has a severed hand with personality. Yeah. So this movie opens with a suburban home, contemporary to 1999, and it's decorated for Halloween. So, Brian, did you have any opinion on the Halloween decor in this film? Well, in the first scene, we meet the parents and the dad
1: is played by Fred Willard, who I feel like is a very, like, specifically late 90s, early 2000s type celebrity. And the kind of celebrity who shows up at just the very beginning of a horror movie <laughs> and, and not for very long. But they both seem invested in their Halloween decorations, well, I guess the mom specifically because she like gets a lot of stuff out of like better homes and Gardens magazine, like all the housekeeping tips and like little recipes she's into that, but like in the what do they call it the the foyer of this house just inside the door, they have American Gothic recreated, but the farmer and his wife are like pumpkin head scarecrows
0: and I, I liked that yeah what else did we see i i was as much en- entranced by the the late 90s interior period details like gnarly wallpaper there's some wood paneling going on everything's right. covered in quilts i liked the teenage son's attic bedroom mhm
1: and Actually, this whole movie reminded me a lot of there was an episode of alternate ending the like spin-off of that that's specifically horror themed that your friend hosts the guy who you've been in contact with through Letterboxd. Yeah, I don't
0: know if, if I would call any of them my friends, but I definitely I'm on their forum and I've I've chatted with him. Is he uh, Brendan Brennan? Brennan, right. He's the guy who gave us the the curriculum of slashers to watch.
1: Right, so he's the host of this horror spinoff of the larger podcast, and on that one, they did an episode about a movie called Braindead, and it's also about a teenager who, like, lives in an attic and is just, like, very in his own world, and then horror stuff starts happening and he's in the mix, but I I saw a lot of parallels. We might have to talk about that one at some point, even if it doesn't get a whole episode.
0: Yeah, it wasn't Braindead made by uh someone famous? No, I'm thinking of something else. What's the one that Peter Jackson made? Well, that's also
1: called Braindead, but also called Dead Alive. Oh, okay. Because it was called one thing in New Zealand and a different thing in America. The this Braindead that the podcast was about was a video game that like releases a Freddy Krueger. Gotcha there's like this this creature that comes out of the video game and it's like commanding the
0: kid to kill through VR. That sounds pretty fun, actually. <laughs> Since you brought up alternate ending, one, another thing I'll, I'll say is that I'm keenly aware of who Devin Sawa is because uh, one of the hosts, Carrie, of that frequently talks about how Devon Sawa was her number one childhood crush, particularly for his Casper appearance. I think he's a little silly looking. I don't know. He's got like a gap in his teeth. Uh, I think he's roguish. You know, I definitely was more of a Christina Ricci guy. But if I swung the opposite way, I I think Devin Sawa might have been my type. Fair enough. So anyways, yeah, Suburban House, two parents, Fred Willard, uh, also in an episode of Community. And I I get him mixed up with, man, is it John Higgins? What's his name? John Lee Higgins. Oh, John O'Herlihy. No, someone else. Uh, what's this guy's name? You sure it's not John Harley? 95% sure. John Michael Higgins. That's his name. I, I, I get him mixed up with John Michael Higgins. They're both character comedy actors who tend to make whatever they're in a little bit better. Oh, yeah, I can see this.
1: I feel like they must have been in a movie together. Actually, I can tell you what movie they're in together. I can just tell it off the top of my head. It's Best in Show. It's one of the Christopher Guest mockumentaries. John Michael Higgins plays one of the dog owners. He's a gay dog owner. He's part of a couple with Michael McKean from Better Call Saul. And the, like, MC of the dog show is Fred Willard.
0: Gotcha, okay.
1: So there is some overlap. And this guy, John Michael Higgins, up till now, I didn't know his name. I recognized the actor. I saw him in a play at the Kennedy Center.
0: And... I think we gave him a shout out without recognizing him by name in the Walk Hard episode, because isn't he the record producer?
1: That's right. We both said we liked him, but we didn't know his name. And so now shout out to John Michael Higgins. Last episode, we were paying tribute to Richard Jenkins, and now John Michael Higgins gets his due. Yeah. And Fred Willard. Uh, you turned me on to that other film podcast recently, The Rewatchables, Mm-hmm. and they have a section where they talk about that guy. This is what that is.
0: (laughs) Maybe we need our own categories someday, Brian.
1: Yep. Things to talk about when we're looking
0: back on 100. Right. Anyways, back to Idle Hands. The parents, when they lie down for bed, see a message written on the ceiling that says, I'm under the bed. And it's in like creepy blood smear horror letters that show up when the lights go out. And they peek down under the bed. They don't see anything. But then they go running around searching the house. They'll check on Anton, their teen, who's in the attic. And finally, they don't see anything. They head back to bed. And uh, we kind of are following the mom here. And she gets grabbed by this hand that reaches out from under the bed and pulls her under and... We see the bed kind of shake dramatically and blood squirts out. And this is kind of our first visible kill of the film, of which there will be many. This is a pretty bloody and gory movie. Like, I don't remember, for example, Scream, which this was obviously inspired by to some extent being so bloody. I feel like this is bloodier than average for as far as horror movies of the era go, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm trying to think, like... The the start of it was
1: kind of dark and abrupt, but then it didn't phase me after that. I don't know. It got sillier. It got warmer. I was really perceiving it
0: mostly as a comedy. I guess it's got all this comedy going on. I think it diminishes it, but there there are... The kills are pretty graphic, I guess, and there's a bunch of them. It's like, it's not really a slasher, but the cadence at which the kills come kind of reminded me of a slasher. yeah. I guess at least one person does essentially go through a
1: blender, so I can't really say there's not a lot of blood, just that it didn't faze me too much.
0: And some of it's kind of gross. Like, we're going to see the parents and in a dead in a minute, and one of the ways they find it is an eyeball being dragged around by a cat. So anyways, then we kind of cut to Anton, and Anton is not an, a stoner teen, always blasting music on his headphones, and... Lighten up his little bong. I don't know exactly what you call the kind of pipe he has. Oh, he has a asthma inhaler that he's converted. So it's like a
1: secret little weed pipe. Okay. So that, like, when he gets approached
0: by the cops at one point, he's like, it's just my inhaler. Right. And uh, he's in such a, a stupor, such a haze, I guess, that it takes him a whole seven days to realize that his parents aren't around. And he starts looking around. He's like, huh, I guess nobody's feeding the cat. Huh? I guess the pantry's empty after I've eaten all the food. I thought this was a pretty well done
1: instance of a character being totally oblivious of (laughs) horror goings on around them. It was almost up there with the early scene in Shaun of the Dead when the zombie apocalypse has happened, but he like gets through an entire day
0: without realizing it. That's a great scene and a good pull. Yeah, I mentioned he listens to a lot of music. This has got a pretty weird soundtrack. I mean, I guess it's of its era, but it's got a lot of punk and some metal on it. It's like Blink-182 and the Vandals and the Offspring make a prominent appearance. They're also the band. I think they're the band at the prom at the end, or it's not a prom, whatever the the Halloween dances. And there's also a track by future horror director Rob Zombie. This was just a couple years before he made his House of a Thousand Corpses, or whatever it's called, his his first horror movie. But I, I always like it when there's like really specific time capsule uh, soundtracks. the The movie proper begins, of course, as just about any stoner comedy does. When the stoner in question needs to go get some weed, he needs to go get go to his dealer, get get another stash for himself. And uh, he heads off where he meets his two buddies, his, his partners in crime, Mick, who is played by Seth Green. And then this other guy, I'm pretty sure his name is Pnub. Is that what you heard, too? They say it pretty quickly.
1: Yes, it's Pnub. Pinub? Spelled P-N-U-B in the captions. Okay. <laughs> and this was explained in the Amazon sidebar I've talked about frequently of late. It said that their names are Mick and Penub because it sounds like Wook and Penub in All the Wrong Places, which is the humorous cover of the song Lookin' for Love in All the Wrong Places in the Saturday Night Live sketch where Eddie Murphy plays Buckwheat from The Little Rascals and comically mangles many words and the screenwriter thought it was funny to tangentially pay homage with Mick and Panub.
0: That's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. That is really dumb, but it's all
1: right. Very complicated <laughs> to
0: explain, but I read it, so now you have to listen to it. Yeah. On his way to to get his refill, this is when he gets harassed by those cops. Sean Whalen is the name of the the actor who plays the heckler in that thing you do, and he's he's one of the cops there. But he he makes it to Penub and Mick. I think it's Mick's house, and they kind of go back and forth about whether he actually has any weed. I'm not sure that uh, Anton actually ends up with any more. But he Anton heads back to his house, and Pnub and Mick follow him shortly, but not like they don't walk with him. Which it's relevant because he gets there first, and he's by himself, and he discovers that his parents are dead and the way that we discover this is this gross and funny scene when he's watching tv again and making himself a sandwich cutting meat but it's a bloody blade presumably used to kill one of the parents and he's like dipping it in mayonnaise and spreading it on his sandwich and like when he notices that it's blood he starts spitting it out and uh I don't know. I just thought this was a pretty inspired way for him to discover something that fell, making himself some munchy sandwiches. And then he's freaking out and running around and he knocks over those
1: scarecrows in the front hallway. Only it's the parents corpses with
0: pumpkins on their heads. Yeah. And they've just been standing there the whole time. I thought that <laughs> was pretty creepy. Yeah. And Pnub and Mick also arrive at the house and Anton quickly pieces together that the way that the parents died is in fact that he himself is the killer as he discovers his hand has become cursed and has a mind of its own. Which is, it's a pretty interesting premise. I didn't quite follow how he didn't discover this for a whole week afterwards and then he finally did discover. Did you catch that, Brian? I did think that was weird. It's like the
1: hand gradually develops a will of its own, but like killing the parents seems like a pretty big step. It seems like it would have to be in control at that point. So I don't know, maybe it was like steering him around in his sleep
0: or something. Right. Yeah. I don't know. But now we hit what I I suppose would say, I would say is the promise of the premise, which is Devon Sawa, Anton, acting like his hand has a mind of its own and is jerking him around and he can't control it. I actually think he does a pretty good job with it. I, I was uh, I was buying into it. What about you, Brian? He does a really great job with it. I
1: was laughing. I thought this was pretty funny. There's a handful of moments where it was really inspired, the things that he was doing with the hand, and I will come back to that.
0: And in short order, the the hand has killed both friends. So Mick gets stabbed in the forehead by a glass bottle. And Pnub is running away, and the hand throws a saw blade and decapitates him. And the head kind of slowly slides off. And so now both of his best friends are dead. R.I.P.
1: Mick is played by Seth Green of Robot Chicken and Family Guy and several other things. I didn't recognize the Pnub actor. His head getting cut off, I thought was a goofy effect when the initial slice happens. Mm -hmm. But then all the other severed head effects are pretty good. Everything else they do with this head, and as we'll see, they do quite a lot with the head, I thought was effective.
0: I agree. So the panicking Anton, now with four dead bodies at his house, runs. I can't remember exactly what the impetus is, but he heads over to his longtime unrequited crush molly's house so molly is played by jessica alba and this was i think just a couple years before she would become kind of the du jour most beautiful actress in the world and uh, she's definitely very beautiful here i would say you know i don't think that's controversial
1: Absolutely. And this aspect was another thing that really had me thinking of that Braindead movie that I watched because of the podcast, which uh, has the dude like horning around after the girl next door and this demon that he unleashes is like egging him on like, oh, why don't you go talk to her? Yeah. And only now it's the demon hand
0: that's like literally pulling him across the street. Right. He's got like a poetry book of hers that he found on the ground to return to her or something. But this bit that I thought was really funny, like the, the hand is trying to kill Molly and he's trying to restrain it. Like it's essentially causing him to be like very aggressive and making the moves on her. But he's, he's like inadvertently doing it really smoothly. And he basically straps the hand to the bed, which of course, gets kind of played as like a BDSM thing. And uh, they're starting to, to hook up here. And they agree to go to the big Halloween dance the next day. And I think this also like kind of really highlights the the metaphor of the, the premise, which is that when you become a teen, to some extent, you can't control your urges and the things that your body tells you to do. And here that's kind of literalized. And I just thought this was was a clever scene, a clever way to to use the premise. I agree. This scene was really well
1: executed. I think my biggest laugh of the whole movie is when he first comes into her bedroom and his hand like flies back behind him and slams the door shut. (laughs) And it really looks like it's doing its own thing. And she's like, oh, my, you know, this whole scene. Yeah, the hand is like going after and grabbing onto her and. He's restraining it with the necktie. Really good acting by Daryl Sawa here. Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa. I was thinking of Daryl Sparra of Spy Kids. Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who was in a movie directed by Rob Zombie who appears on this soundtrack. So it's a natural connection. He's in, I think we might have talked about it in the Spy Kids episode. He's in the first Rob Zombie with young Michael Myers. Uh, is becoming a psychopath. He beats up and almost kills... Uh, what's Daryl Sparra? Is that what it is? I think so, yeah. Who who plays kind of a bully character. And of course, Junie from Spy Kids, which is the key link. I don't know if we already said that. Anyways, so he heads right back to his house and he is shocked to find that his two friends, Mick and Pnub, have risen from the dead and are now like zombies essentially in zombie makeup and but they're just their are normal personalities and they're going to be hanging out with Devin Sawa with Aunt Anton for the rest of the movie so they but they still have their impairments of course so Mick has the bottle like impaled upon his head sticking out and Panub is carrying his head is cradling it in his arm Except sometimes, like, he's leaving the head on the couch to watch TV while he goes and stumbles around the kitchen to get some munchies for himself and stuff. I agree with you. I thought this was always pretty well done. Like, I, I, I kind of stopped wondering how they did it and just kind of accepted it at some point. It's is pretty good. Right. You're able to suspend disbelief. It's quite good.
1: I, I loved everything with these friends. A few thoughts at this point. You couldn't just stab a broken bottle into somebody's skull like Seth Green has got. <laughs> like, it just wouldn't work. The bottle would break apart before it penetrated skull. But yeah, I, I like their personalities. I like the way they interact. And I thought it was really funny, the explanation for why they're still around. Because they say that when they died, they heard voices calling them to, you know, go to the light at the end of the tunnel. Only it was a really long tunnel. (laughs) And we thought we'd just stay here and hang out. Yeah. Like, they're literally too lazy to even die. Pretty great. I agree. So their unfinished business is to lie around on the couch some more. The only thing they did in life, and they're going to continue doing it now. They're like the laziest Marley. And they're kind of hanging around for a bit, like watching TV still. Oh, they also say that they hang out at his house because you're the only one with dead parents.
0: <laughs> There's a lot of good lines. They, at one point, they turn on the TV to see like what's going on with the murders around town because now they know what the cause of it is. And one of them, I forget who, says, The news, I hate this show. Which I thought was pretty funny, too. But the cops show up and they, of course, see two undead people and then two dead corpses and they're like "Uh uh-oh we found a killer and they they go in and try to arrest him but the hand of course fights back and kills both the cops uh one of them he like tases to death and we get like an electric burning to smoldering flesh death and anton's like all right this hand has caused me enough trouble it's got to go How do you get rid of a hand? Well, you literally chop your hand off. So he decides he's got to chop his hand off. Of course, the hand doesn't want to be chopped off. And so there's this scene where he's like trying to cleave it off, but the hand keeps dodging it coming down. And again, very well done. I don't know exactly how they filmed it, but I thought it was very good. The first way he tries to chop off (laughs) his hand is with a bagel
1: guillotine.
0: (laughs) Yeah, one of those bagel cutter machines. That was pretty funny. Also, I'm going to spoil the most popular show of the past decade, but uh, this had me thinking of Game of Thrones where Jamie Lannister gets his hand cut off. And uh, it's it's a symbol in many ways because he he used that hand to kill the king in the past. Hmm. I wouldn't know. I've never had HBO. <laughs> so he, he finally gets it chopped off. And now, of course, it's not like the hand is just a sack of flesh sitting in the trash can, it it has come to life like a thing from the Addams Family or like Evil Dead. It's like running around. So now things have gotten even worse because formerly Anton could at least like control the hand or at least the, the limbs that the hand was attached to. But now he's trying to keep the hand under wraps. And what he eventually does is he grabs it and tosses it in the microwave and starts frying it in the microwave. There were some good effects microwaving the hand
1: because it's like spurting little rivulets of blood out the fingers as they
0: pop. Yeah, pretty gross. And this this works for a bit, but of course Mick and Pnub need to to have their munchies. So they open the microwave to cook something in the microwave and the hand comes flying out and running away. Um, And this is just as the the Halloween dance is starting the next day. And spoilers, this dance is going to be where the climax of this film happens. How many Halloween movies
1: did we watch this year that specifically had a dance in them? I know Halloween Town 2 did.
0: This one's got it. There were a couple. Were there any beyond that? That might be it. Yeah. see. There's no dance at Cabin in the Woods. No, I, I don't think so. I think it's probably that, but... I don't know. I, Katie kind of makes fun of me that I I always I have always liked the plot device of a school dance. It's like where everybody comes together. There's high drama, right? I just noticed it more this year that m- in multiple films there is, "Oh, will you go to the Halloween
1: dance with me?"
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess that like conveniently places it at the same time as uh, Halloween for for us, our, our high school Brian, and I imagine most high schools are this way. There's Homecoming is the big one and at least at our high school um everyone went to homecoming and like asking someone to homecoming was like a big thing. They had a whole asking week. And there were some years it was pretty close to Halloween. That's true, yeah. It would it would often bleed late into the fall like Halloween. And then of course prom, but prom for us was just 12th graders. Um I know some schools have multiple proms or they have juniors and seniors at the prom but ours was just one prom and just the seniors, I believe. But there was occasionally other smaller dances, but I don't ever recall specifically a Halloween dance. Meanwhile, as all of this has been going on, we've been getting a few scenes of this, this Druid lady, uh, a woman who's like hunting down the curse and she simultaneously traces it to the school dance as well. And so, She's going to be meeting everybody there. I liked a couple things about this
1: subplot because, well, she's a crazy conspiracy theorist driving around in an RV and apparently knows the legend of this hand curse. Like other people have had this evil hand controlling them. And then like once it's accomplished a certain mission, it will depart its host and spiritually travel to possess somebody else. And she's got, you know, all the cork boards with strings as she traces the country. Like, all the places that the hand has settled, it makes a pentagram on the map. It's it's pretty crazy and funny. She also explains that what this curse is, which this is kind of late into the movie. I think we could have benefited from hearing this earlier. Maybe it doesn't need an explanation, but the explanation they give is that this demonic force possesses the hand of whoever is laziest in the world at a given moment <laughs> i forgot about that like if you are the biggest slacker this thing possesses you and so literally it's the idiom that gives us the movie's title that idle hands are the
0: devil's play thing right it's clever yeah so at the the dance it's determined that the hand for whatever reason is specifically intent on killing Molly, killing Jessica Alba's character. And so there's a whole chase rigmarole going around where, where Molly and one of her friends are, are trying to avoid the hand, and Anton is trying to figure out where they are and following them around. Oh, you're, you're
1: skipping over stuff. Okay. So the the two friends come to the dance, and they're just there as zombies, and, like, everybody loves their costumes. And Panub is hitting it off with this friend that that Molly brought. And I liked seeing Panub happy. Yeah. He's got his <laughs> severed head, like, wobbling around on his shoulders because Seth Green hooked him up. He, he put, like, a dowel through his torso <laughs> into his head so that the two parts can be connected again. They kind of duct taped it on. Yeah. Yeah, and then he wrapped duct tape around his throat. I really enjoyed the dynamic between the friends. They were they were always there for each other. They were very supportive. Like when Devin chopped off his hand, what's his character name? Anton. Anton. Uh, that was kind of a goofy name. But yes, it, when Anton cuts off his hand, they were there to like provide first aid. You know, Seth Green has got the hot iron to cauterize. And then Penub's like, let's go to my house because I have a first aid kit. <laughs> like, they really thought through helping each other out, and they they never left each other behind.
0: Yeah, and they're not even that mad at him when he
1: kills both of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sign of a true friend, Dan.
0: Remember that. I feel like for most people, that would put a damper on things multiple ways. Any other highlights from the dance itself or, or, or the scene here? Oh, doesn't... After he gets his head duct taped on, doesn't he, like, eat something and it comes oozing out his neck holes? Oh,
1: well, that's why they need the tape, because he tries eating, like, a microwave burrito, and, <laughs> yeah, there's just beans dribbling down his neck. But, yeah, the the friend... The friend dies, and so Penub doesn't get any action. That's uh, Molly's friend. Is the one who goes through the industrial fan.
0: Yeah, so she... She goes through the fan and she like gets uh, chopped into bloody spray. And so they end up in this shop class room. It's like a a workshop, but it also has like car stuff going on too. Did we have a shop at our high school, Brian? I don't know. Yeah, we had the prototyping lab,
1: which was essentially just the shop class. That's the one that I took. Everybody at our high school had to take a senior tech lab where you worked on like a science project that took the whole year and for the kids who like didn't take ap physics or like bc high level calculus prototyping lab was the move because it was just shop class we did not have an auto shop though lake braddock had an auto shop
0: and i think that's what this room is gotcha yeah and the hand at some point essentially manages to strap Jessica Alba on Molly on top of a car and is like raising the lever and oh no what can they do to stop the hand from raising the the car to to crush Molly and Devin saves the day what does he do he takes for this custom bong that they found i don't know if one of them is said to have made it or They just happen to find it, or if it's even supposed to be a bong, but they they treat it as if it's a bong.
1: Yeah, so Panub claims to have made it, but there's argument over whether he's just making that up. Okay. And this thing is, like, made out of, like, exhaust pipes for a motorcycle. Like, long chrome pipes all wound around each other. And it's designed so that all three of them can smoke out of it at once. Right, and it's like a muffler, yeah. And you can also,
0: like, strap it to your back. It kind of looks like the jetpack in the Rocketeer. And Anton uh, lights up and gets a big whiff of weed smoke and blows it out at the hand, which the hand gets buzzed, gets stupored, and stops raising Jessica Alba's body just in time.
1: Right. Also, at that point, I mean, it's a minor note, but the hand has gone inside a hand puppet and so that's how he's able to like hot box the hand i guess as he breathes this puff into the puppet suit that the hand is wearing right
0: which is also a funny image because now it's a hand puppet flying around
1: yeah yeah
0: they had some good hand related antics that it gets up to yeah they thought they came up with a bunch of good ideas and you get to see a lot of stuff I was surprised that the whole movie, the hand didn't flip anybody off. You're right.
1: That's like the obvious one. Maybe that was too on the nose. That was low hanging fruit for an evil hand movie.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I'd say that's an oversight. I feel like this movie would have been improved with one flipping the bird. And after they they hot box the, the evil hand, the druid lady shows up just in time and throws one of her magic druid blades and impales the hand, I guess presumably destroying the curse and, and so the day is saved uh, anton kisses molly but as he's kissing her i think i i couldn't tell if it was from them or if it was from something mick and penub were doing but one of them like bumps a lever and the car that had nearly crushed molly now comes down on anton and nearly crushes anton in fact it appears that for a moment that he's died but we'll see that he has just been very badly injured and is going to end up in the hospital in a full body cast. And then we get payoff on Mick and Penub too because they turn and they see in the door, they see the tunnel again with the, the light and they decide it's finally time for them to go. And, and so they become angels. And so we see them in like transparent double exposure vision and they become Anton's guardian angels basically. So they still get to hang around. Of course. Yeah. Which, you know, the stoner always going to hang around each other, which I, I liked. I thought this was a sweet ending because you're right. They're good friends to each other. And then the movie ends with, uh, Anton lying down in his hospital bed, full cast. He, he's just gotten a, one more kiss from Jessica Alba and the lights go out and he looks up. And once again, he sees I'm under the bed on the ceiling. Only we hear that, uh, This was the work of Mick and Penub, who I guess have sufficient corporeality to play pranks on their friend, despite being guardian angels now. Maybe they wrote it in ectoplasm. Could be something like that. And that's how Idle Hands from 1999 ends. But one thing I learned, Brian, is that uh, they actually originally had written and filmed a different, darker ending instead of a shop class showdown. It was going to be like a hellhole, like a path to hell with like a whole wall of hands, apparently. And they actually got as far as making the effects for it, but they didn't include it because it did poorly with the studio and with test audiences. So apparently it's actually on the DVD and this is enough for me to buy the DVD because I really want to see what this alternate ending is. It might be on YouTube also. I'm going to look it up and see if I can find it. That does sound pretty interesting.
1: From your description, what I'm imagining is... Do you remember the... Well, wait a second. Have you ever seen Labyrinth by Jim Henson? No. All right. Well, in that, there's a scene where the main character falls down a hole and she gets caught by thousands and thousands of hands. And the hands start talking to her by forming faces like shadow puppet style, the hands come together and like two hands are making eyes and two hands are making a mouth. And then they, they talk to her about, do you want to go up or do you want to go down? And they're like crowd surfing her along through this pit. Oh man.
0: Really creepy visual. That sounds interesting too. Yeah. That's one I really got to watch, but yeah, so that's, that's idle hands. So, uh, Brian, what are some some other things we might have missed, or maybe some good things about Idle Hands? All right, well, I do have one that you missed.
1: During the school dance, a moment that just shocked and delighted me was that, like, Anton runs in and is yelling to everybody, You gotta get out of here! There's a killer hand on the loose! And... Everybody's like, oh, yeah, sure. And of course, at this point, Mick and Penub are enjoying the party. They're having luck with the ladies and they're like, oh, yeah, evil hand. It killed us today earlier. And everybody laughs at that, even though it's technically true. They did get killed by the hand. But then the hand drops from the rafters onto the head of the band leader and scalps him, just rips off the top of his head and his skull and his brain are exposed to the air. And yeah, really gruesome, really sudden, unexpected moment. And then it's chaos.
0: I think that's the lead singer of The Offspring, like the the pop punk band from when we were in middle school, Brian. I could be wrong. (laughs) So that was a pretty cool cameo. Yeah, getting his his scalp pulled off. Another thing I didn't mention is... (laughs) At one point, the druid lady hasn't realized that uh, Anton has cut his hand off. So she's specifically trying to kill Anton. So like, he's chasing down the hand, she's chasing him down, and she's got him pinned and and ready to kill him when he rips off uh, the thing that had been covering his wound and waves it in her face. So she's like, oh, man. So then they have to go hunt down the hand. And just this image of like waving your severed wrist in this woman's face made me laugh. Also, at one point, she has this watch that has, like,
1: multiple compartments that open up, and it has runes all over it. And she says, it's druid time.
0: <laughs> which
1: also made me laugh.
0: It's like the meme from this year, it's Morbin time. Right. So, Brian's any overarching good things that we haven't mentioned yet about idle hands? I talked
1: about it a little, but I really felt charmed by how wholesome this dynamic between the friends is. And you're right. It, it isn't even really earned because Anton murdered them both. <laughs> but Seth Green and Panub are always there to be a guiding light, be a warming presence. I I feel like at one point Penub uses his own head as a bong and I, I'm not really sure how that works, but it seemed like what he was doing.
0: Yeah. I really felt like this movie simultaneously captured the kind of like shambling giddiness and silliness and of a stoner comedy where the stakes are kind of all goofy in a a movie, you know, just everybody wants to get their pot and that's about it. And uh, really made it fit into this horror movie. Well, it's like, it made me laugh the way a dumb comedy makes me laugh. But it also was like an effective horror movie. I mean, it's not scary in that sense, but just like really leaning into the concept and having the gore and the the kills and the intensity of it all. I thought it delivered on on the premise very well. Right. And
1: there were multiple times watching this that I... Just had to admire the filmmakers for committing to this premise. It's like, this is kind of goofy, but like they really did it. They came to work and they saw it through to the end. Right.
0: Did all the practical effects, like really considered what are some of the goofy things that could happen within this premise. Cast overall, pretty good. I think Devon Sawas is is pretty excellent, as we talked about, with even just being a uh, charming funny teen who is overwhelmed. I think he does a good job even outside of the hand jerking him around stuff, which is also very good. And yeah, you know, lots of friendly faces. I think this movie deserved better than getting panned and, and losing a lot of money. So, one thing I didn't say is this movie was directed by someone named Rodman Flender, who I learned is the uncle of Timothy Chalamet, and if you uh go look up Rodman Flender, Sure enough, he looks like what Timothy Chalamet will probably look like in 30 years. He's got like the same really narrow face with like the kind of pointed gaunt features around the nose. Oh, that's interesting. Well, here is something I just learned. The
1: movie I called Brain Dead about 10 times is actually called Brain Scan. That's the title of the film from 1994. So, Brian, did you have any not so good things? I actually didn't have too much that really brought the movie down for me. I didn't come in with super high expectations, mostly because I didn't know anything about it. The very beginning, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about the movie because I've seen quite a few bad horror movies that start out with, like, kind of C-list celebrities who are there for one scene to get killed by whatever the monster is, and then like the rest of the movie doesn't really deliver anything else of note uh, specifically i'm thinking of santa's sleigh the one where james khan and fran drescher are in the opening scene and they get killed by santa claus and then i can't remember anything else about the whole movie <laughs>
0: but luckily this movie did not fall into that hole it does have the vibe of a cheesy horror movie from moment to moment particularly at the beginning what about you? Things that were sour notes for you? Uh, not too many, I would say, sour notes. I mean, uh, there is kind of, you know, the the characters themselves are pretty simple because it's a comedy and like there's no depth or anything interesting about Jessica Alba's character, except to be eye candy that the main character uh, chases after. But, you know, it's par for the course in, on these kind of comedies. And most of the jokes hit pretty well, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, not too many complaints myself. I would say um, I was pleasantly surprised. Oh, here, this is maybe a complaint. It's pretty gross from time to time. Like it goes for the squeamish gags or the gags that make you squeamish. I suppose, like when you see the flesh frying in the microwave from the hand, and like he chews something and it comes out his severed head hole, and just all the blood and violence and stuff. It's it's uh you probably could have made this movie s- with slightly less horror in it and still had a lot of the same effect, but I actually am overall glad that it went leaning into the, the full horror treatment as well as the comedy treatment.
1: Yeah. It reminded me of some horror comedies of the eighties that really had the gross out physical effects uh, one that I mentioned in our chat while I was watching it was Reanimator. There's a few others that are, kind of fall into this almost subgenre for me, where it's like a horror comedy that's gross out physical effects from like late 80s, early 90s. You could probably lump Return of the Living Dead in there, but things like there's one called Frankenhooker. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's a. A trend in filmmaking of that
0: era that I have recognized. So, Brian, I'm ready to give this a rating. Did you have anything else you wanted to say before we rated? No, I'm set. Let's do it. All right. So, Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from Very Not Good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a Good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian... Is Idle Hands from 1999 good? So to me, it was actually very good. Six out of eight.
1: It rose in my estimation as it went along. When we got to the scene where he goes over to Molly's house and the hand is driving him around and slams the door shut and then like grabs her butt. I got to a five at that point. I was like, you know what? This is a good realization of the premise. I do buy... That he's getting pulled around by a disembodied hand. Or just a hand beyond his control. And it's funny, and he's doing a good acting performance. But what really brought it up to that next level was the return of the undead friends. And just every time they were on screen, they were making me laugh. I empathized with them more than with Anton. Like, when the girl went through the propeller, I felt bad for Panov. And Seth Green was pretty funny. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. I, I quite enjoyed it. I wasn't expecting much and was pleasantly surprised. What about you, Dan?
0: Yeah, I'm not far from you. Um, or I should say I'm in the same boat as you. So I was kind of waffling between a five and a six as I was watching most of the time. There would be an inspired gag that would have me thinking six and then a dumb gag that would have me thinking five. and when we started recording tonight, I wasn't sure, quite sure where I was gonna land, but your enthusiasm has been infectious, and I'm gonna give it a soft six. That is very good as well. I I had a I had a really good time. It surpassed my expectation. I've decided that I like horror movies when they're at least a little bit silly and funny. It's like I just enjoy them more. I mean, maybe that's not a surprise, but after so many dour Halloween outings we watched 13 this month this was refreshing and uh i had a good time with it so very good by consensus idle hands well done oh and one other thing i mean we said it we didn't leave it
1: out but just by coincidence i guess dan this was a very
0: halloween specific horror movie yeah so i wasn't sure how well it would fit but it ended up fitting great it was a, a lucky blind pull and uh I was glad to have watched it. Yeah, good
1: one to wrap
0: up spooky month. That's right. We had, we watched five spooky movies. We watched Oh man, Suspiria for our 100th and then what did you pick, Brian? We watched Ghost Watch and Monster's Inc and
1: Cabin in the Woods and of course the entire Halloween Town franchise. So that was four more whole movies.
0: So we had a busy October. Indeed. And for our next episode, we are actually not going to be selecting a movie because we're going to start celebrating our 100th episode anniversary now that we have made it out of spooky season, which we like to celebrate here. The first thing we're going to be doing is our 100th episode spectacular in which we review the movies that we have watched over the past six months and hand out some awards and maybe also do some retrospection and prospection. I think we decided is the word for looking to the future. So that should be fun, Brian. And then I think we might have one or two more fun little things up our sleeve for subsequent outings. Sounds fun. It'll be a fun little, uh, diversion from our, our normal routine. Now that we've have made it through our theme month and our, our, uh, spooktober. So I'll look forward to our 100th episode spectacular with you very cool saves me having to pick
1: a movie for a week or two all right all right well thank you listeners for tuning in as always happy halloween here on the goods join us again